Welcome to episode three of Terms of Service. In this episode, we spoke to Jake Allen, who is a Solidity developer working exclusively in the NFT space and who's been behind some really interesting art projects as a developer. And what's really interesting in this conversation, which we hope you'll enjoy, is that beyond the technical aspects of NFTs and the description of the way they work and all of their particularities, we go into aspects that are not so often talked about, like the sort of social consensus that allows NFTs to work, as we often think that they are exclusively based on this immutability of the blockchain to guarantee um, the, val the validity and the ownership of the artworks. But as Jake explains very well, there's a little bit more to it than that. So thank you for joining and uh, let's get started. So welcome everybody to the third episode of Terms of Service. Um, thank you for being with us. And we, today we're very happy to have Jake Allen with us, who's coming from right now, I think in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. And who is a currently a Solidity developer, but who has worn many hats in his career. So um, Jake, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you're working on or what your notable projects have been and maybe a little bit how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Um, yeah, so I come from like a kind of traditional tech startup background. Um, I kind of wandered into Silicon Valley maybe over 10 years ago and kind of fell into working at a startup and then kind of fell in love with it. Um, so, you know, to begin with, I didn't know much about businesses or technology or anything like that. I wasn't a programmer. Um, but joining that first startup, um, it was like a fewer than 10 people. It was like really scrappy and all the founders were these German guys that had moved to, to San Francisco. And I just kind of fell in love with the, I don't know, the romance, I guess, of trying to build something big and starting with just something really small. And uh, it piqued my interest in technology. And that's kind of how I got into programming and ultimately got into product management, which is um, kind of where I sort of headed and ended up. Um, so yeah, over the past 10 years or so, I've been working at various startups. Most recently, I was at a company called Cameo. So Cameo is this uh, platform that basically connects you with celebrities who will do like very brief shout outs. So for birthdays or, you know, whatever it is, um, you can hire them to, to kind of make a video for you. Actually, crypto Twitter has kind of caught onto this and is, has been using them to make some funny, funny stuff, some funny memes. Um, so I was an early employee at Cameo, um, and then I was the head of product. Um, I stayed there for about three years doing, you know, product strategy and um, building, kind of building the product. Um, and that takes us into the pandemic and, you know, the kind of crypto NFT explosion, the most recent one. And that's kind of when I started getting interested in this stuff. I, I kind of opened up Twitter one day and saw something odd about these things called moon cats. And then I just kind of put some money into this like MetaMask thing that I had no idea how it worked. And I minted a bunch of these moon cat thingies, not really knowing exactly what it was I was doing, but I had a lot of fun doing it. And then, yeah, they ended up being worth some money. And I kind of got obsessed with this, like, you know, the space, this, this space where all this weird stuff was happening, where, you know, people were talking seriously about these pixel 
pixelated things and cats and like collectibles and things. So I kind of got swept away and, um, you know, I think a lot of people made big life decisions during, during the pandemic and reflected on what they were kind of up to and made some changes. And that was a big change for me. It was, I just, I left my job and started kind of experimenting and exploring the NFT and crypto space more broadly. Um, I think the first thing I ever did was try to write an arbitrage bot, which is like a kind of way of capitalizing on discrepancies in the value of cryptocurrencies across, um, across exchanges. You know, often they're really small discrepancies, but you can kind of like capture a little money here and there. Um, so that was kind of like my first foray into solidity. Um, <clears throat> and I got something that worked, but I kept getting like outbeat by people who knew more than me, like Flashbots people. And I would only ever get like 0.00001 Bitcoin at a time or something like that. Um, so it ended up not really working out. But anyway, I kind of moved from there into looking at NFTs and releasing some of that uh, type of work. Um, I think the first NFT that I released was a thing called fast food nouns. That was kind of a joke, um, but it was there at the time there were all these people releasing like nouns derivatives or, you know, extensions or whatever you want to call them expansions. Um, and there was this one called goop. I think it was called goop DAO. And I, I, I was really confused because it looked like just duplicates of nouns. So I was like, I don't understand how this is interesting. This is just someone copied nouns and sold them. So I was like, well, what else could be interesting to do? And I kind of hit on this idea of um, wearables. So like fast food nouns could wear things. And the kind of the first thing they had was like a fast food McDonald's hat. Um, but I basically kind of figured out this way where you could on the fly kind of um, insert different SVG um, snippets into the kind of final rendered output to kind of put clothes on them. Um, and then you could think about ways to build marketplace on top of that and have people creating clothing and submitting them um, so that other people could wear them or buy them. And so it kind of turned into this thing for a little while. Ultimately, it was really just a big experiment, but um, that kind of led into getting connected to some, some sort of proper artists in the space. I think the first person I worked with was Jan Robert Lichte. Um, and we worked on a project called Ornament, um, which is something he had done um, in the past. And we turned that into an on-chain um, an on-chain uh, NFT project. Um, and then, yeah, that led to other things. Most recently, I've been working on a project called Finillier. So there's this artist named Ed Fornielis in England, and he came up with this, this concept, this, the Finillier, and there are these like cute creatures that are sort of embodiments of various data. So, you know, the original ones he made were embodiments of um, the US dollar, the Great British Pound, and, and Ether. And the, the, the kind of the conceit is that uh, when those markets go up, they're happy and they're like elated. And when the markets go down, they're sad and depressed and sick. Um, and we've turned that kind of core concept into this 10K, um, you know, NFT projects. And, and we're, I'm, we're working on building that world out, basically. And that brings us to today. Cool. That's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff, but I guess um, the first question I have is: so it seems like you basically picked up uh, how to work with Solidity from the moment when you discovered NFTs. You didn't have like a deep background in writing Solidity for years; like you just sort of taught yourself. And yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd say like 
Solidity and JavaScript, JavaScript's kind of the language of the internet. Um, they're similar. I think I read somewhere that Solidity was kind of modeled off of JavaScript. I mean, I've done crazy things like copy and paste JavaScript code into Solidity and like have it just work. I mean, I don't just do that as a practice. Like I, I did this very intentionally one time because I said, hey, this looks like perfect Solidity code, actually. Just some for loops and some things like that. And uh, we did this on Ornament, actually. There was a lot of Jan's code which he had written because the work he had made was, you know, a code-based work. And I looked at his rendering script and he writes everything in vanilla JavaScript. He doesn't use any kind of like, um, you know, libraries, any visualization libraries. So I, I looked at this script and I was like, well, I think I could just put this into Solidity and we could just run this on the Solidity side. Um, so yeah, long story short, they're very similar. And I'd say also the scope of Solidity is somewhat self-contained. It's not you can't do a million different things in Solidity. The, the range of things you can do is quite small. So you, it's, a, it's a different approach to coding. You have to be much more careful because you're dealing in permanence and you're dealing in uh, money <laughs> and you can't lose people's money. Um, so you have to take like a very, very um, hyper kind of uh, careful approach, but the, the kind of complexity stays small. It's kind of, it's the reverse side of that same coin, I'd, I guess. Yeah, that's I guess the 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 reason I was asking you that is that I I you know the feeling that that we get from talking to developers is that they're extremely cautious about deploying a smart contracts because of all the potential errors that would be very costly and as you said the impermanent or the permanence of the of the code on the blockchain etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um so so maybe you know I'd I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that. I'll just maybe go back quickly to two things you said. So you mentioned nouns and just for our audience nouns is a project that was launched, I guess, a year or so ago, or maybe a little bit more that where every single day, a new character is created. Um, and the particularity is that these characters are created um, generatively from code that's written in the smart contract, I believe. Uh, so they're not uh, images that are made by an artist. They've been essentially created from some parameters that are being moved around every day, and then they generate a new character. And then you also mentioned SVG, which I think is a, we could just say is a file format that um, allows you to write in code certain parameters that allow you to create an image. Is that is that uh, something, would you say that's an accurate description? Yeah, of nouns and of SVGs. Yeah, um, yeah and nouns, is the, the kind of contracts themselves are quite brilliant. Um, and uh, I wish I could remember all the names of the people that wrote the contracts, but they're, they're available. You can find them, but they're really smart smart people. Um, but the reason they're brilliant is because they've come up with some kind of simple but powerful encoding schemas. So you can kind of take things like a, well, the nouns have like a 64 pixel grid, for example. Um, and you could imagine different ways to kind of describe uh, colors that should go onto each grid and you just iterate across each grid, you know, maybe go left, right. And I think that's what they do. They call it left, right encoding. And you just say which color each of those squares should be. And you could pick, figure out ways to kind of represent colors with smaller bits of code. So like maybe a zero, because a zero would correspond to the zeroth color in my list of colors, or the, a 10 would correspond to the 10th list in my list of colors. And you could con con conceive of really tiny ways to describe a 64 pixel grid so that you're saving, um, saving space and ultimately saving money and allowing you to kind of get a little bit more detail that way. So it's a really brilliant. Um, mechanism and I kind of wanted to get in there and like sort of tweak it and mess around with it um, and sort of figure out ways to kind of 
insert things into the description of the of the grid um and that's kind of how fast food nouns works um yeah and, and svg is a really popular format for on-chain work it's funny because it's an old format and you know people have been using it forever but you can kind of um declaratively like describe visuals in a pretty concise way so it works similar it's very similar to html um so you can just kind of describe how something should appear um, in words and your browser can render it. And so it's just become the kind of default format for on-chain work because it's, it's so concise. Um, you can have really big SVGs too, but you can also have quite small ones. Um, and some people can even just make visuals by writing SVG code directly, which is insane. But, Isn't that uh, what, what CryptoPunks was, was using or is, was it a different mechanism? Um, I think originally CryptoPunks was uh, not on chain. Um, and basically what they did was create a big poster of um, all the 10,000 CryptoPunks in order with their numbers underneath them. And then they took that poster and they made a hash of it. So a hash is a kind of way of encoding data. So you take this big poster and you turn it into like a really small string of numbers, but it's a one-way algorithm. So you always know that if you took that poster and hashed it, you'd get that number and no one could get that number by hashing something else other than that poster. So it's kind of a guarantee of, of, a, of a matchup there. And what they did was then just put that hash onto the smart contract so that you needed the poster to kind of see the, you know, to, to ultimately be able to do this kind of on-chain verification, but that you could, as long as you had the poster. Um, I so think- you just, you just used a really important word that I'm gonna ask you to define sure. again, which is hash. Cause I think that's something critical when it comes to understanding how this stuff works. Yeah, totally. It's it's critical to cryptography generally, um, but it's the key is that it's a one-way algorithm to kind of convert some bit of data into a smaller set of data. Um, and the reason it's critical that it's that it's one way is that you can't derive the hash, the, the appropriate hash, without the actual correct bit of data in your hands. So it proves that you had that bit of data, or that you're dealing with the correct bit of data. Um, and it proves that some other bit of data couldn't have produced the same hash. So these kind of one-way algorithms are really critical when it comes to cryptography because you kind of you can prove that you or that you know you know wh whomever or whichever bit of data is the correct bit of data or the correct person who has done a certain thing, and that it wasn't someone else. You can kind of make those strong guarantees. Um, yeah, almost everything right. in cryptography yeah. is built on that. And you and it's also it's interesting because it's almost like you could say you're you're translating a bit of data into this string of characters, but you can never go back. You can't you can't recreate the data from that string of characters. It just serves as a proof that the encoding was correct, that you actually are looking at something that that you can validate comes from that original source of data. So it's almost like a a matching pair, but they can never sort of convert into each other. Yeah, great point. That's a really critical bit, that last yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, so just going back to uh, to what you were saying about solidity and sort of that that there's a lim sort of limited amount of things that you can do with it, um, you know, how, how would you describe that in, in more detail? Because, you know, one of the things we were trying to understand about blockchains in our first episode was, um, you know, it, we were trying to break away from this like metaphor that People always say a blockchain is a decentralized ledger, which seems like a very boring idea. It's just a database of transactions. But then our, our first guest, uh, Sean Muspultz from Bitmark, was saying it's actually more of a computer 
if you take it more in the sense of Ethereum, um, but it's a computer that has a very specific set of capabilities. And so we were trying to understand, okay, well, if it's a computer, can it just compute anything? And that's where we were trying to get a little more in depth about what Solidity can do. Like, can you write anything in Solidity? Could you write a CAD software? I don't know. Um, so yeah, could you just go a little bit more in depth about those, those limitations? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the right answer to that is that in theory, you could do anything. Um, so Solidity is uh, complete enough that you could sort of write any arbitrary program. Um, and most programming languages are complete in that sense. Um, but the limitations aren't the language itself. The limitations are really the kind of computing environment and requirements around the language. So Solidity itself is, is you know, full featured enough, but the, the real constraints come from the kind of environment in which you're deploying these contracts. And, and there you have to kind of consider um, the nature of the blockchain itself, I, I suppose is the way to say it. So what I mean by that is that um, Ethereum is meant to uh, be decentralized. It's peer to peer. So anybody can, can and has to run their own nodes um, to kind of contribute into this network. And it's important that um, these processes are kind of redundant across many, many nodes. Um, and then there is a way of kind of achieving consensus across all of those nodes. Um, all that is to say that it requires a lot of computing power to do relatively simple things because of all that redundancy. Um, and so Ethereum has made the choice to kind of accept all of these computational limitations in exchange for greater security and decentralization, which is a result, again, of how many of these things are, are kind of running, how many of these processes are running. Um, so yeah, if you think about it, it's really just a, it's an energy requirement kind of limitation. Um, if I run something on my machine, I can run a, I can watch a 4k, you know, movie on my, on my laptop, but if everyone, you know, in the world wanted to watch the same 4k movie and I wanted to serve it to all of them, then suddenly that would become really expensive. So I don't allow 4k movies. I, well, I mean, I guess you could upload a 4k movie to Ethereum if you had enough money and if there was enough space per block, but, um, but yeah, so it's a kind of a, at the end of the day, it's a function of energy requirements. Um, and so those computations become quite expensive because of their sort of, you know, redundant nature because they're, they're occurring so many times and that goes for computation and storage. Right. So, I mean, I think Ethereum up to now is like a thousand gigabytes, um, like the whole, the whole of Ethereum. So the larger it gets, the more expensive it is to kind of host a full node. And um, you need to come up with ways to kind of break it into pieces and maybe let certain people host little parts of it and compose that whole. Um, so those are some of the ways people are exploring to make it less expensive. But, um, but yeah, it is quite expensive. Cool. So I guess since, um, since we've, we've started going a little bit into Solidity and, and smart contracts, um, could you help us understand? So let's go just straight into NFTs. Like, what what's um, I think what what's sort of not always obvious is that an NFT is a smart contract. Um, so, what kind of smart contract is it, and what makes it unique um, in comparison to other types of smart contracts? Yeah, I think I would say maybe not that an NFT is a smart contract, but that uh, smart contracts. Uh, sort of, you can't have an NFT without a smart contract. Um, 
so there can be many NFTs per one smart contract. I guess that's the only kind of small little thing I would say there. Um, and and sorry, what was the what was the question again? Well, if you could if you could help us understand hmm. what um, oh what an NFT is, what an NFT is, and 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 sort of if you look at uh, so I guess there have been smart contracts before there were NFTs. So yeah. what makes a NFT smart contract different than than others? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the fundamental goal of an NFT is to kind of uh, basically create a token that can be owned uniquely. Um, so it helps to kind of think about tokens more generally, maybe. Um, so kind of what predates uh, the concept of, of a sort of an NFT is this idea of a token. So you could think of Bitcoin um, or you can think of ERC-20s, but we don't even have to talk about that. Um, and the, the critical thing there is that there's just some stuff um, and it doesn't matter which one of those things you own. Um, you just have to own a certain number. So literally when you think about an ERC 20, for example, what it means to own something is just for you to have a balance. So your balance could be 20 or it could be 50, it could be hundred, but it doesn't say which coins you own. It doesn't even have that idea. It just says what your balance is. Um, and I think, you know, the U S dollar is kind of like this. Um, although you could have like individual pieces of paper. So it's maybe even less fungible than a US dollar. Um, and then the critical question is like, okay, well, how can we take that same concept and let you own some one thing uniquely? So that's kind of the critical kind of like hurdle to, to jump there. And there were always kind of, I think that idea has been around quite as long as, you know, tokens generally, but um, in different formats. So, I mean, early on you had this idea of a colored coin um, and a colored coin is just it has a color, so it's different. So you might want to own this this one colored coin instead of this other one. Um, and you have examples of kind of like early NFT ideas on Bitcoin. Um, for example, you have like rare Pepe's and different ways to kind of hack Bitcoin to to sort of contain data so that you could sort of demarcate little transactions as kind of um, indicating uniqueness, um, even though Bitcoin doesn't have a concept of that natively. Um, and so you start, you kind of start with that as a as a need. Like I want to represent that someone owns one this one thing particularly, and that's kind of where um, ERC seven twenty one comes into play. And really, all that's happening is there's some bit of functionality. Um, this this is the smart contract. It's really just a bit of code, and ultimately it just says which one of something you own. So rather than saying what your balance is, it doesn't say you have twenty. It says you own twenty, not number twenty or number 21 or number 22 or whatever schema you want to use to identify these things. You, you technically probably wouldn't even have to use a number. You could name them. You could say this one's named Jake uh, and you own Jake. Um, and really that's just arbitrary, right? Like just whoever's writing this code could come up with this kind of way of um, indicating ownership. And the really critical thing about ERC 721 is that you just follow a certain set of rules. So you, you indicate ownership in a certain way, you have some functionality to indicate who owns which ones, um, and that you include some, some mechanism to transfer those things. It's kind of the extent of it. It's really simple. Um, owning an NFT is like literally just something in the contract that says owners, and then it says that you, a specific address, own this one right here. So you could easily picture like a website that I could build, you know, forgetting about the blockchain that just says like, I have a hundred things and you need to come in and write your name and then you can claim one of them. 
and then you get one and you get two and you get three and you get four. And I don't even need to say anything else about what those things are. They're just things. Um, I guess that's why we call them tokens, right? Because in a sense, the word token means that there's one thing that represents another thing, right? And, and that they have the same value, but yeah, you have the token, like you have a letter of credit from the bank and then you can give it to someone and they'll give you cash or something like that. Um, totally. So, so, so just quickly also to clarify, you, you mentioned ERC-721. So ERC-721 is essentially a standard uh, for a certain type of smart contract. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. It basically specifies um, a kind of minimal amount of um, of specific methods or functions that have to be included for it to be kind of considered a an NFT. I mean, interestingly, people have made NFTs that sort of break those on purpose. Um, so like I mentioned, a transfer function. So one of the critical kind of bits of functionality that powers NFTs is the, the fact that I could send them around to people or sell them. Um, but technically, I could just make an NFT contract and delete the transfer functionality. And then you just couldn't do that. Um, and so, I don't know, I guess that's kind of an NFT, just doesn't really follow the spec. Um, and you can do that up and down the stack. You could figure out ways to tweak it to kind of do custom stuff. Yeah. Um, We've seen I, a lot of interesting artist NFT projects, right? Where they they mess with the smart contract itself and, and make it do things it's not supposed to do, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I once made a contract um, where the idea was that the contract itself was the special thing. Um, so I inserted a bunch of like visually interesting looking comments and functionality inside the contract. Um, and then I, I included a method to identify an owner of the contract itself. So if your address is listed as the owner, then the idea is you own that contract. Um, it doesn't have any of the kind of affordances of like being able to sell it or transfer it. I mean, it could transfer it over the counter or something and just write someone else's, the new owner could write someone else's address into the owner field. Um, but yeah, so, so someone owns that now and you know, it's sort of an NFT, I guess, but <laughs> it just, it's owning something else. Cool, so um, so now I think we understand better what, uh, what, what an NFT is or what a smart contract uh, NFT is. Could you tell, tell us a little bit more about the architecture of an NFT? Because it's obviously not just the contract, there needs to be other things. So what, what are those things and how did that sort of construct of these different elements composing an NFT uh, come together? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so another thing that's really kind of critical now, I mean, you, you could technically have NFTs without this. Um, and I actually don't think this is part of the original spec, um, but everybody now uses this um, functionality to kind of identify the characteristics of an NFT. So whether that's an image link or a name or a description or any kind of traits or attributes. Um, and everybody uses the same function. It's called token URI. So on any of these NFT contracts, you could go hit the token URI endpoint and give them a token ID and it'll give you the descriptions of that token ID. So this is, is a way URI? Kind of... can you Can you just unpack? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so a URI is a uniform resource identifier. It's the same thing as a URL essentially. So when I hit this endpoint, it gives me back a URL. Um, and the URL should lead to some JSON. Um, and the JSON should have some specific format. Like JSON is just a kind of super simple um, kind of descriptive uh, markup language or something like that. So basically it has key value pairs. So you could say the name is this and the image is this and the attributes are these. Um, and 
yeah, everybody's kind of settled on using these, these, the same set of um, key value pairs to just sort of describe things in ways that all these different platforms, OpenSea and Rarible and super rare, all these like different platforms, um, wallets, wallet providers and everything, um, you know, apps like context, like anything that you use in web three, they're expecting this kind of consistent, um, format. And a lot of that's still up in the air, like some fields OpenSea accepts that other platforms don't accept. And sometimes you can stuff extra bits of things in there that nobody's ever going to care about, but if they looked, they could find it, um, different formats or different downloadable stuff. You could really do anything you could return anything um at this uri doesn't have to conform to any of the uh the expectations of any of the platforms it just helps if it does because then any, anyone can read it wait so just just to understand that better so what you're saying is that in the smart contract there is a pointer right this uri to a piece of descriptive let's call it markup language so it's very very simple code and this markup language has information that says okay let's say uh, name of the artist, uh, name of the piece, uh, dimensions of the piece, duration, I get whatever things. I guess this is what we call metadata, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So in essence, that information does not live in the smart contract. It lives in the separate document that can be stored somewhere else. Yeah, mostly that's the case. So when people say that an NFT is on chain, what they mean is actually, no, the metadata for the, for the NFTs themselves are also stored in this contract. Um, and the reason that's interesting or advantageous to people is because it just reduces the kind of, um, the surface area for breakage. So you, you could have things like link rot, um, if you're using just a kind of standard link. Um, but if, if you know that the kind of descriptors for this particular artwork, or like in the case of certain on-chain works like ornament, like I mentioned, ornament, you hit the token URI. And it gives you the SVG. It gives you the actual image. It's it's returning um, code that is going to be automatically kind of rendered in the browser. So you know that there's no possible world in which you can't actually uh, retrieve this anymore. I mean, unless Ethereum goes down or unless browsers can't support SVGs anymore. Um, so you kind of achieve a a bit of an extra level of security or you know redundancy there. And then there's also kind of a metaphysical aspect to this, which people enjoy, which is like, you know, there's a kind of sense of completeness or a sense of um, wholeness that comes from the sort of the idea that the machine itself has kind of built this work, that the machine itself is kind of complicit in putting this, uh, putting this like sort of image together. It, it itself is, is doing it. It's kind of nice, I think. I, I mean, to me, that um, that seems like what, a lot of people who were first encountering NFTs assumed that the NFT was contained in, in the, there was one thing that was an NFT and it had the code and it had the image and it had everything. And then I think little by little, people started discovering, wait a minute, there's actually this metadata file that's living somewhere else. And then wait, the image is also living somewhere else. Um, and so it ended up feeling like, okay, there's this like very fragile balance between three things. And there was that famous uh, Moxie Marlin Spike article where he actually changed the image based on on how it was called or if it was being called from a different server or something. But essentially, he kind of showed that this system was very fragile and could break. If somebody knew what they were doing, they could very easily uh, mess with it, which, which to me sort of... Um, reminds me that in a sense, even though we say, oh yes, it's really secure because it's on the blockchain and you really own it, 
there is quite a bit of like trust and and uh, and sort of untangible uh, status and reputation associated with these things, right? It's not, it, it, it's very easy to break an NFT in other words, unless it's on chain. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, you mentioned the kind of social kind of aspects of this. And I think that's where really the big sort of um, differentiators for the NFT space has come from. I mean, people in crypto talk a lot about social consensus or the social layer. So, I mean, you could think about kind of um, people call it L1 or layer one consensus, which is just like literally the, the technical consensus mechanism of, of Ethereum to which kind of achieve a singular state um, that everyone agrees on. Um, but even beneath that, there's a social consensus layer, which is like, you know, everyone needs to agree that Ethereum matters or that, that, that we should all focus on it or that it's worth our attention and that this blockchain instead of this blockchain is better or that this fork of Ethereum is better than this other one. I mean, there's been instances where Ethereum hard forks and you need a kind of a critical mass of people to just sort of shift over to the, to the new fork. Um, and a fork is basically just kind of like splitting, splitting into two. Um, and I think that NFTs similarly kind of have this unparalleled kind of social buy-in and sort of critical mass that a lot of, um, that, that powers out all of it, basically, that makes the whole thing matter. So I, I kind of think like, you know, I, I myself went through this phase where I was like, okay, on-chain is the best stuff. And then you kind of go, go past that and you're like, well, okay, like we're all just kind of here having fun. Like, because it doesn't, does it matter? Like, am I really going to forget if this thing breaks that it's, it represents this thing over here? It's like, it, it actually matters that we all agree it matters. It's kind of doesn't matter so much that there's some kind of like technical, um, consistency to be honest um so i mean yeah. i think you can go you can go back and forth thinking about it different from different ways and um yeah there's kind of an interesting sort of little conundrum there i mean it, it is because i was i was actually with uh, some uh, elder people in my family this weekend and they were sort of they were giving me the old question of like yes but if i can make a copy and it's exactly the same then what's the value of owning an original if the copy is exactly the same and, and i think in the end is as you said, the, the social consensus that there is an owner, okay, it might be encoded in the blockchain, but it seems like the social consensus has more power than the actual code-based ownership pointer itself. As, I mean, that's the feeling I get. I think that's true. But I think that the, the infrastructure itself is kind of, um, was a requirement to kind of mm. get through that sort of mental barrier or kind of to get to that point. So, I mean, it's not just that there's this like indicator that I'm the owner. It's also that there's a kind of consistent and standardized way for people to discover that I, I was the owner. I mean, they might be browsing a marketplace and see that, see what's inside my wallet. Um, I might be able to share my wallet and show people what's in it. Um, there's all this kind of like sort of social um, software that's built up around these kind of little really quite basic bits of ownership and transferability and you know even just marketplaces themselves there's a place for me to sell this thing and buy another one of these things all of that kind of leads to this you know it's not like it negates the need for the social consensus because it all still doesn't matter if, if no one cares um but i think it's what enables it to to kind of count um is, is that there's this recourse to kind of some of these basic functionality yeah that, that makes a lot of sense um so 
So sort of going deeper. So, so if we talked about smart contracts, we talked about the metadata, and then there's the file, right? Um, if, if we're not, if we're talking about not on-chain uh, contracts, um, you know, if you are a uh, creator who's just made a great video and you go to a uh, foundation or to Rarible and you're like, you're going through the form and you're adding all the information and then it says, okay, upload your file. And then you upload, upload your file and you get the message, oh, we can only support a file up to a hundred megabytes or something like that. Um, so it seems like storage is a particular thing in, uh, in, in the NFT space. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how you understand storage and, and what are sort of the ways that, um, what it is now and how maybe it could get better? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is storage uh, at the contract level and, and the other one is storage of files. Um, so I'll just maybe talk about the contract level first. Um, I think the reason you hear so much about storage at the contract level is because it's so expensive. So whenever you mint an NFT, you create a new bit of storage, right? Because we need to store that data that you're the owner. Um, and depending on how expensive it is at the time to kind of run these transactions on Ethereum, it could be quite costly to do even basic things. Um, and so, yeah, developers are always finding ways to kind of hack that. So people have come up with creative ways to like store large bits of data at, as contract bytecode and then call, call that bytecode and parse it from another contract because it's slightly cheaper to store store data as contract bytecode than it is in the normal contract storage, um, for example. I mean, those, that's some of the crazier stuff people do. Um, Sorry, so you said bytecode, which I think you're going to have to explain. <laughs> I'm going to keep yeah, stopping so, you every time you go technical. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so everything on Ethereum is stored at specific addresses, and this goes for computers too. But basically, you need to find a storage slot and put something there. Um, and so your account is at a specific, your you know, wallet or whatever, is at a specific address, you own that address. Um, and also contracts are at specific addresses. So it's really the same thing. Um, so there, a contract, a smart contract is just a bit of runnable code that you stuff into some storage slot. Um, so when I say byte code, I mean the contract code that um, you know, makes up that kind of co contract and, and is stuffed into that specific storage slot. It all kind of gets broken down into, you know, machine language and gets stuffed into a storage slot. Um, yeah. So people will write things, you know, into a contract that they want to recall later, but it's not actually contract code. They just pretend it is and they stuff it into a, a contract um, bytecode and then they call it back and parse it into different little pieces they can use as, as storage. So that's the that's the storage bit, and I think maybe just to add a little bit on the bytecode. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but but essentially, when you're writing a contract, you're writing in a human-readable language. But once you, in between quotes, compile it, uh, it becomes bytecode, meaning that it's a language that can be understood by the machine more directly. Is that? Would you say that's right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You write uh, you write a, a contract in Solidity, and then it gets compiled down into yeah. bytecode. Yeah. yeah, so there's a compiling aspect. Um, languages, different languages treat, treat this differently. Like if you're writing JavaScript, you don't need to compile it. Um, your browser can just run JavaScript. Some compilation will happen under the hood, but in Solidity, you actually compile it down into, into a different um, you know, set of 
unreadable, unhuman readable constructions. Yeah. Okay, so that's the storage bit for for Solidity. So what you're basically you're saying is that there are little bits of code that gets stored here and there, and then um, and then people essentially uh, get a, get sort of refer to that so that they don't have to put that in their own contract, and it makes their contract a little lighter because it's referring to bits and pieces that are stored elsewhere. So their storage is a little cheaper than if they had to combine everything in a single contract. Yeah, more or less, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and then how would you describe the storage of the actual files that people would assume yeah. is the... Yeah, so naturally, because people kind of understand this sort of risk of link rot, um, people have tried to find more sort of uh, redundant ways to kind of store files themselves um you could you can't really put a file on ethereum um, unless it's really small people have done like experimental stuff in this direction like i remember there was one project where you kind of mined you could um you could pay to submit a little portion of a jpeg onto on chain and then if enough people did this then a whole big jpeg would kind of exist on chain um so people have you know tried these kinds of things it's just super expensive i mean it's it's really not practical and so you have solutions like IPFS and Rweave to kind of try to come up with some way of storing, you know, uh, files in a way that's not, it doesn't have the same kind of, you know, security or longevity uh, sort of aspects of putting it on Ethereum itself, but it gets you close. So in the case of IPFS, it's a kind of, um, if you're familiar with torrent, like I grew up, you know, do it using like BitTorrent and like pirating um, music and stuff. So. Um, I'm familiar with torrenting. Um, you know, if you're familiar with this like idea of torrenting and seeding things, then IPFS will be really familiar because it's very similar. It's like a peer-to-peer -peer, um, service that lets you kind of basically seed um, or pin data that other people can also seed and pin. And then it sort of achieves a level of uh, redundancy because everybody's sharing it across multiple um, different, you know, computers. So it has some aspects of blockchain. It's not quite blockchain. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's similar. So people use that as a common solution. Um, and then Arweave is a little bit newer. Arweave actually builds itself as a blockchain. I'm actually not super familiar with how that works exactly, but the idea is that it is meant to be a blockchain, um, and that you can store files in an even more permanent sense than you otherwise could on IPFS. Right. So IPFS, I think stands for interplanetary file system. <laughs> the best uh... Best name ever. Best name ever. Uh, and, and, and so this idea is that all of us here, let's say the three of us have a copy of an NFT that we're storing on our hard drives um, and we're in different locations. And probably that means that if somebody's trying to view this NFT, they, would, they could get it from either of our computers. And if my computer went down, it would still be stored on yours and on, on Nico's and, and that would allow for uh, a sort of a protection of the file because it's yeah. decentralized, right? It's decentralized yeah. storage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the interesting things about IPFS is that it hashes the content. So it uses the same hashing concept. And then the ha whatever the hash of the content is, is where you could find it. So it becomes a URL. Um, so if you and I had the same exact file and we both put it on IPFS, it would hash to the same number. And so IPFS would know not that it didn't need to also store this extra one, that it just, you're referring to the same thing I'm referring to. It's the same, it's the same location.
Does that hash live in the smart contract or in the metadata or only on IPFS? It, well, you have to have, if you're, if you're using the IPFS route, then you need to put um, that, that hash onto the smart contract. So the, your token URI that we talked about earlier, it would return that hash. And most people format it such that, you know, you put an entire folder of 10,000 pieces of JSON into IPFS. And then, you know, you name each one like zero, one, two, three, four, so that they correspond to the token IDs that you want to reference. So when you'd hit the token URI endpoint and ask for token zero, it would just give you whatever the IPFS hash is slash zero. And then you could, you can format it that way. Okay. So essentially if I, if I were to create a, a, a what we call a one-on-one -on -one NFT, which is a single image picture of my computer and I make an NFT out of it and it ends up that image that I made and it gets stored on IPFS it's in a way there's there's kind of a, a clear way to show that that image is that image even if somebody else has a copy of it would it resolve to a different hash if that image was let's say slightly modified or had been resized or something like that or would every single copy of that image result in the same hash no if if it's different if it's changed it would result in a different hash okay. for sure so yeah. you needed you needed to be in the exact same binary yeah. like binary blob of, of data yeah. so the yeah. file would need to be the exact same and okay. that's a guarantee that that it hasn't been changed so if you ever wanted to kind of verify that the file you're dealing with is actually the one that is meant to be referenced you could yeah. hash it and check okay um not that many people are going to be doing that but yeah of course <laughs> um and you mentioned this just now this this uh you know folder full of json with with a ton of different numbers I guess what you were referring to, uh, or at least what I understood is, is sort of, for example, if you, if you launched a collection like of 10,000 NFTs, each one would have its own little folder or little data points of, of uh, metadata. Um, and so talking about these like big co collections, I remember at some point, so we were used to this standard called ERC-721. And then at a certain point, somebody came out with, or let's say the community came out with another standard called ERC-1155. And I think there's a new standard now that allows for different things. So could you just tell us a little bit about these standards and sort of how they come to be and also what they, you know, why, why do people create them and, and, and yeah, yeah, just go a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about why people created the ERC 721. And I think really the, the kind of short version is that people wanted some way of owning some unique token, not just any old token, but a precise one. And that allows you to do things like sell art. Um, but also, you know, people kind of go, okay, cool. Well, what if I wanted to sell an edition? So what if I, I made like this piece of art, but I wanted to sell like a hundred of them. Um, with the ERC 721, you'd actually be selling a hundred different tokens and that's, that's fine. They could all reference the same metadata. And so you'd know that even though you own token 99 and this other person over here owns token 89 that like actually they're kind of the same token you know because they're both referencing the same art um but the idea of 1155 is basically to enable that use case so with 1155 you have what's called semi-fungible um, tokens and so they're kind of unique but kind of not like in the way that i just described with additions so i could mint like three different pieces of art and I could let anybody mint any number of those three things 
over the course of an hour. And then however many were minted of each one, that's how many owners there would be of, of those. So in that case, you're going back to using the idea of a balance. So I have a unique token, which is token one, and it has a balance like, you know, user A could own 50 of them. Um, but there's also token two, which is different from token one. So they're semi-fungible. There's a little bit, of, there's an actual difference between the tokens. But once you get inside one of those tokens, there's, there's no difference. Um, I think that's the easiest way to understand it is like thinking in terms of additions. Um, and, and that's useful. I mean, that's, that's the way a lot of people want to sell art. That's a lot, a lot of trading cards make sense that way. If I own like a rare Pikachu card or something, like it's probably the same as any of the other rare Pikachu cards in the same condition. Um, you know, right. so it's, it's kind of, yeah, you kind of get these use cases like trading cards or addition to artwork or. But so, yeah. so, so let's say, so we have ERC721. It, it's sort of useful for a while. And then people start realizing, wait, there's this, there's this problem. There are more and more of these big collections. We should change this standard. So is that something that goes through like the whole EIP Ethereum proposal mm -hmm. or what's the way that these standards actually get defined? Yeah. Yeah. So they get, they start as proposals. Um, and then once people have a chance to talk about them and refine them and edit them and debate over them and talk about them, and it's mostly just Ethereum developers that are doing this, this kind of discussion. Um, and it, once it's determined, there's a real need for something like this and it goes through the whole thing, then it becomes a kind of official proposal, um, and becomes, you know, like an ERC. So yeah, there's a kind of process of people proposing these new use cases and new um, protocol, really like new um, kind of standards. And then, yeah, people, people uh, deciding to kind of use them. And ultimately it's still just a social thing. I mean, no mm -hmm. one needs to use them at the end of the day. Um, so right. there are many like ERC whatever's that no one cares about. Um, and there are many, you know, NFTs that just do whatever they want and they don't have to, they don't follow any kind of standard or anything you could always have just made an erc 1155 hmm. um it's just that now you have the benefit that you know something like OpenSea is going to be able to handle it yeah. properly and implement code to support it and you get the benefit of plugging into an entire ecosystem when you kind of follow one of these standards but again if you're if, if OpenSea didn't care to implement 1155 then you wouldn't have any of those benefits and there's plenty of situations like that so it's it's a kind of delicate balance, I guess, between social consensus and technical kind of descriptions and yeah. Right. So that, that kind of brings up this idea that in a sense, there's a interesting contradiction between the speed at which the, the space moves, but also the impermanence of all of this. So it's almost like we're, we're, we're working really, really fast, but we're working for eternity or as long as the blockchain runs. Um, and so what I wonder is, is, you know, because I guess like you were saying you entered the space maybe like two years ago or around that, maybe a little bit more, um, uh, at least specifically with, with NFTs. Um, it, and, and in a sense, have you seen things that have become obsolete? And do you think obsolescence of some of these concepts is an issue that could uh, arise in the future where things would maybe you know, not work or, or just become, you know, depreciated and then artworks could kind of disappear because the code that was used don't, won't run anymore. You know, like how, how would you, how would you describe yeah. that sort of idea of obsolescence? Yeah. I think that's one of the more interesting kind of 
things to think about in the blockchain space. Because I mean, you have this idea of longevity and obsolescence. Um, sometimes when you say permanence, you don't really mean longevity. You mean like can't be changed. You mean like it's 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 um it's durable against like you know against tampering. Um, so people use the word permanent in, in a kind of variety of different ways and it creates like this ambiguity. Um, when it comes to like longevity and obsolescence, I think it's highly, pro like highly, not likely necessarily, but it's high highly possible that everything we're doing is becomes obsolete. Um, and I think, you know, if that's going to be the case, then it's up to this kind of social consensus mechanism to kind of create new ways to consume these things and represent their, their ownership. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about Ethereum is you have this concept of composability. So things can be built on top of other things. And um, one of the ways you can think about this is like, there's all these things called wrappers. So I could write a wrapper contract. If, you're, if you wrote a contract that doesn't have some functionality that I want, I could write a wrapper contract that adds that functionality and asks the user to deposit your thing into my thing and then issues you a new one. Um, so there are all these kinds of ways that you could use composability to kind of like circumvent these um, problems of obsolescence or kind of move the community forward. And at the end of the day, like I said, I think it's mostly about social consensus. So um, there's probably no technical limitations to doing something like that. Um, it would really just be a matter of like, do we all agree that we want to do that? Um, so I think there's technical ways around this stuff, but I, I think we often fantasize about like the idea of permanence in a way that isn't really I mean, really that reflective of how humans think or operate. Like we, 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 we kind of fantasize about the permanence of like our pixelated ape uh, JPEG thing. And like, I don't know, we forget that like, I don't, most people don't even know who the president of the United States was like 50 years ago. Like you're going to just forget. Like it's just like, it only needs to be as permanent as your mind, like, and your culture surrounding you care it to be. So I think it's, it's much more likely that like, we just stop caring than then there's like some grave technical barrier to, to a lot of this stuff. I mean, like, for example, if you put something at a, some contract address uh, and then everyone loses the link to it and I don't, nobody knows what contract address it's at. It's like, it's gone. I mean, like there's no way I'm going to be able to like iterate through all the possible contract addresses and find it. So, I mean, if, if simply people stop caring, it's effectively gone anyway. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that technically it's still there on Ethereum. Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely a community of, you know, digital archivists and people who work in museums who feel very concerned about this stuff and you know, it's it is it has been a problem for digital art since since there has been the conservation of digital art because if you created something like in a particular on a particular type of hard, type of hardware that doesn't nobody makes anymore or a particular type of lamp that you can't replace uh the stuff is um is dead after a while and it has to you have to accept it it seems like you have to have an attitude towards that as you're describing a little bit that's um maybe more uh zen than uh <laughs> than yeah ever. but I, you know i sympathize with the yeah. with the challenge and the yeah and i mean i look i like to look at net like old net art and i have this yeah. problem too where i click a link and like it's not yeah. there anymore it's, like it's yeah. broken or, or it needs like um the most common one is it needs like flash Right, and like flash, yeah. flash just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So I, I get that this the challenge, and like, I guess maybe there's a benefit in in using blockchain where it's sort of encouraging you to think about this. Yeah. Um, maybe the discussion's being had in a way that it wasn't 
maybe it was more confined to kind of a, a smaller set of people, conservationists, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the fundamental problem is still there. You can still write, write code that breaks. There's this really great uh, book called the three body problem. I don't know if you ever heard about it, that um, it's a trilogy that's written by a Chinese uh, sci-fi sci writer. And, and at a certain moment, they, they sort of, the, the book goes into these like very, very long horizons of mankind. So it sort of starts, uh, let's say in the sixties, but the third book is already 20,000 years later. And you sort of start thinking in these very, very long-term vision of humanity. And there's a very nice scene in the book where this guy has decided that he needs to preserve, you know, humanity's greatest cultural productions. Um, and, you know, and I won't spoil it too much, but the, but the main thing that he does is he ends up doing everything in stone. And that's the only way that he can, that he can keep it all. Um, but so going back to smart contracts, uh, in your experience as a developer, so we talked about sort of things that will become obsolete. Are there also conversely things that you're looking at and you're like, this really needs to happen. Like we, we need, this needs to evolve quickly because it's a, it's a poor implementation or it's just a bad idea that this is like this and we need to be able to improve it. Like, do you, does that, is that something that you run into a lot in your, in your day-to-day -day work as a developer? Yeah, I think one of the biggest barriers still is usability of just everything. I mean, I think like you have these fundamentally different starting points and starting principles, I guess you could say, in in crypto, where you're kind of just saying, okay, well, everyone needs to have like, um, you know, sovereign ownership of their stuff, right? And all I need is a private and public key pair, and I can own anything, and that's all it takes. Um, but then you have like problems of just practical practicality. I mean, I could lose the private key. I could get it stolen. Um, like escrowing things is really difficult. I mean, I, I just still think the number of times we see people losing their like board apes or whatever, it's just, it's absurd. I mean, it's just a, it's a field day for hackers. Um, and so I think, you know, there's still just these basic problems to onboarding and educating and people shouldn't even need to be onboarded and educated. They should just know how to do stuff. Um, and I think those are some of the biggest problems still, I mean, it's getting better. Um, but you know, that's you just mean, a huge, do you mean that, it, that things should be easier to, uh, that, that you're talking about sort of new users, new users, uh, uh, having a sort of an easier UX UI experience. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I think you're required to know too many things, right? Um, you're given too much responsibility right off the bat. Um, and people are coming up with solutions. There's some interesting ways to approach this. Um, and yeah, I think, I think those are some of the kind of big critical problems, like just generally with crypto. I think there are more specific like ERC 721 problems that I would like to see solved too. Like, um, like selling and buying things is totally absurd. Like it's every marketplace does different stuff. There's no, so there's nothing in NFTs that basically allow you to buy or sell them. What you do is basically give over, um, you basically give an approval, it's called. So you approve someone else to kind of do something with your token. And so I'll write a smart contract. Let's say I'm OpenSea and I write a smart contract and you have to give me approval on your token. And then my smart contracts functionality will take over and enable sales and enable transfers of those things that are sold. And they'll make sure that if you don't get your money that they don't get the NFT and so forth. But none of those things are baked into the NFT itself. 
So everybody implements them in different ways. Understanding when a sale has occurred across different platforms is a real challenge because they all do different things. I mean, it's really different. It's really hard to disambiguate like when I've simply sent you an NFT versus when you've bought it from me. Um, I can't like list an NFT for sale on my own NFT contract. Um, you use you use some other NFT contract or you know some other contract to do that. So that that notion that like there's there's not one consistent way of doing something that's so basic, which is just buying and selling these things, um, and that to build any infrastructure to kind of like represent all of the purchases and sales that happen across the the ecosystem is really challenging. It that's that's a huge problem. Um, it's it's I don't know exactly how that can get solved, but that's an interesting one too. Yeah, it seems like that goes also back to um, there was a, there was a big sort of hype push when I think late 2020s, early 2021, when everybody was saying, oh, yeah, and finally there's royalties. But then <laughs> after a few months, people realized, wait, royalties actually don't work at all. They're not part of the smart contract. It's, they have to be enforced by the platform. Yeah. And, then it was, and now there are platforms that are explicitly saying we don't do royalties. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, what, what happened with that whole promise? <laughs> like that feels yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And people who were kind of touting that as a huge breakthrough, kind of a lot of them have stepped back and sort of just said, you know what, it was never going to work like that anyway. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's, you just change your tune pretty quick. Um, but yeah, stuff like that, where you're just kind of surprised to learn that, you know, that wasn't actually baked in at a fundamental level that was kind of peripheral and controlled by these individual platforms. Um, so yeah, I mean, it would be nice to have, you know, uh, an NFT kind of standard that bakes some of that stuff in at the kind of ground level. But then, you know, it's hard to get anyone to agree to, to do any of those kinds of things um, just because consensus is hard and establishing right. standards and protocols is hard. People just sort of magically start doing one thing and yeah. it's hard to kind of shift anybody over to a new thing. But could that be like a, a, a new ERC, like ERC... 10,666 that bakes in royalties. Is that possible? I think so. I, I don't know. I haven't put a ton of thought into it, but just back of the napkin, like thinking about it now, I think you could develop that. I mean, you know, you'd do something like um, try to, you know, in interject into the transfer function and determine whether a sale has just occurred. And then if it had like taking a portion of the funds and, and routing it to the, yeah, I, I think something like that probably would be possible. You'd probably also have to bake in sales um, because again, it's really hard to, to tell the difference between, you know, if I send you a token and you send me an ETH, did, did I sell that to you or did I just do an, ex like, did I, you just give me the token and I give you an ETH? Like there's, there's practically, you know, way to block that unless you're kind of, hmm. you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I could always just kind of write some, some logic around that. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a tricky one for sure. Yeah. So I think again, like as, as we were just saying that, that platforms have a role to play and, and they all have different ways of managing these sort of NFT sales and maybe they interpret, as you said, the transfer function differently, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was also this like big promise that uh, was being touted at the time, which was that the platforms were empowering artists which I think is still one of the most powerful messages of NFTs is that, is that artists are now, um, digital artists have, have a little bit more of a market and a way to sort of manage their, their livelihood through these sales. But in the same time, um, it sort of became clear after a while that a lot of these platforms were 
uh, were not really giving. So the art, the smart contracts that were being created were not in the name of the artist. They were in the name of the platform. And then it started becoming a little bit of a debated topic. Like, shouldn't artists have the smart contract in their own name? Um, which seems to be like what a lot of these platforms are now doing is going towards that. What do you make of that? Like, what was that about? Well, first of all, why did these platforms do it like that? And then why did that attitude sort of shifts? Why, why did it become a problem? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I like to imagine that it wasn't any kind of malicious uh, kind of objective or intent, but that really it's just the simplest solution. Like if I'm going to try to have a thousand different people make a thousand different NFTs or even more, the best, the easiest thing to do is just create a big, you know, smart contract and let them all mint off of it. Um, so I think probably it was just sort of aligned on as a kind of simple solution to a, to a, to a challenge. But I think it, over time, it emerged that this isn't actually quite that great because I think there's some practical reasons and there's some sort of more metaphysical ones that we alluded to earlier. But like, practically speaking, I think having your own contract gives you a certain degree of control over things like the link rot issue that we talked about or the exact mechanism in which your kind of um, your data is is stored or returned, it gives you some customization options. Like, you know, even if that just you know fundamentally comes down to a few simple simple options. I mean, um, so there's some like sort of minor practical reasons I think why it makes sense to to have artists using their own smart contracts or deploying their own smart contracts. There's some drawbacks too. It's expensive to deploy a contract. Um, it can cost, you know, five hundred bucks. It can cost a thousand bucks. Depends on what gas gas is at the time. Um, so I think it's definitely a trade off. Um, but yeah, it ultimately gives you just a little bit more autonomy and ownership over the over your own project. Um, a little bit like owning your own website instead of putting it on, you know, Facebook or something. Um, you can but get does the it, job does done. It, does yeah. it do Does it do anything for provenance? So, for example, if you wanted to, in 10 years, see who actually created the, this initial smart contract, do you think that having the name of the artist in the smart contract actually helps with that? Or, or would that really be the metadata in the end that, that defines that provenance? I mean, I don't know exactly what will end up proving useful in 100 years, but certainly if you're launching your own contract, you could put your name explicitly in the kind of code itself. Um, there's all kinds of interesting like practical like challenges here like a lot of people put um that kind of identifying information as comments in the code and the comments actually don't get compiled down into the byte code um so, so it's kind of weird actually so you, you end up like identifying yourself in this in these comments and then you compile the code and the comments get excluded and then what you do is called verify the contract on etherscan for example which is a place people go to kind of like look at contracts. Um, and then they, they, they actually insert the comments. Um, so really in the end, like Etherscan is kind of like owning the, the kind of sort of conservation of those comments. Um, so if you're talking about a hundred years scale, there's another challenge there. Um, it actually gets worse than that. Um, but I don't know if we should go there. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, I guess practically speaking, I'm not sure exactly what people are going to use to to kind of remember that a certain artist did a certain thing. I'm not sure there's ever any practical way in which you're going to just use whatever is in the bytecode to kind of discern that information. Um, again, you can't just like 
iterate through all the existing things on on the blockchain that there's too many address there's too much address space so you need something else um maybe you know some some collector of of contract addresses or some group of people or conservationists or whatever to kind of collect and remember what what was important and where it lives um so yeah i'm not sure about the provenance thing and how how that plays into it um I do know though that finding artwork on massive contracts like open seas contracts is really challenging. Um, there's just, it's kind of messy. And I know that like OpenSea, for example, uses S3 to store images instead of putting them on IPFS, which is- S3 is a, Amazon's uh, hosting yeah. service. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Simple storage service. Um, it's basically just a server um, that they offer. Um, so yeah, yeah, and then so I mean those are some of the practical considerations where I think honestly the answer is quite murky. Um, it's hard to pin down exactly why it's not a great thing for artists to kind of use their own contracts, in my opinion, from from a purely practical perspective. Except for unless you really care about owning the exact nature in which your kind of files, your metadata is is stored and pinned to IPFS or Arweave or whatever it is, and then then I think it makes sense. Um, but I think there's also like a kind of metaphysical thing going on here, which is sort of like this idea of like a kind of unity across the, the project that, you know, the artwork is not just the kind of the visual that you see at the end, but is kind of a, um, it's, it's the entirety of the thing, like the entirety of the project that sort of matters. The integrity of the whole thing is sort of, is important regardless of the fact that whether you see it or not, you know, it's, it's like Steve Jobs, like, cared about famously about like, you know, having the inside of his computers also be kind of dyed black instead of just the outsides. It's like no one would ever see the insides, but he knew it was there. And people kind of feel that quality when it kind of permeates the whole, you know, I think that's sort of mm. a big component in people's sort of consideration of, of the thing. Yeah. It's like luxury. It feels more crafted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, another point that I wanted to ask you about is I think today there used to be another sort of big, maybe not, not a cliche, but a sort of a common idea that would determine how people um, created their, their NFTs, which was a choice of blockchain. And for a long time, I think the two big ones that were acceptable for artists were Ethereum and Tezos, but then Ethereum had all these critiques around the environmental impact. And then a lot of people decided that they would never be on Ethereum. And no matter what you think of that today, it's not even a debate anymore because, because Ethereum has moved away from the proof of work mechanism, consensus mechanism. So, um, so it, and we also have more options today. There's Solana, there's Polygon, there's Flow, et cetera. So in your mind, what are the factors that would determine the choice of a of a blockchain for an artist? Like why would they pick one versus another? Yeah. Again, I think there's some like practical and then I won't say metaphysical, but like philosophical questions. Um, so the more practical ones I think are expense, you know, Ethereum tends to be more expensive than almost anything else. Um, you know, in terms of then another, I think the most practical concern after expense is community size. So I think most people are collecting on Ethereum these days. I know Solana has started getting a lot of volume, so maybe that changes at some point in the future. And Tezos has always had kind of like a kind of small, but sort of like 
cult kind of community. I, I collect some stuff on Tezos too. Um, so I think, yeah, from a practical perspective, it's like expense, but also where are the collectors and where do they care to collect their stuff? Um, and I think the overwhelming answer for me and anyone I've ever talked about this with is just, it's Ethereum. So, I mean, there's just one answer. Um, I know that like Solana maximalists are going to tell me that that's ridiculous and Solana is awesome, but I just don't think that's true. And I, I, I don't collect anything on Solana. I just don't care about it. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe that's just a, maybe that's a, a flaw or a, in my thinking that I'll come around to, to, to thinking differently about, but that's just how I've always felt about it. Um, and I think it's just true. Like when you talk about all the best NFTs, they're all on Ethereum and that's where we all are. So I think there's a kind of like important, um, yeah, social consensus that has emerged that like the gold standard is Ethereum. Um, I think Tezos has a lot going for it in that it's kind of like, it's a little bit less like collecting for the long term and a little bit more like, um, I don't want to say dumpster diving. That was the first word that came came to mind, but like basement searching or like, you know, like kind of feels grungy. It feels a little bit chaotic. It feels like you're kind of like in some cool scene. Um, and I think that's a cool part of collecting on Tezos, but it, I certainly wouldn't spend as much on Tezos as I would on Ethereum because I just don't think the community is is there. So that that's certainly a consideration. I think Tezos is fun though. And like a lot of people are releasing kind of more experimental stuff there and it's a cool place to be. Um, and then, yeah. So, I mean, those are some of the practical considerations. Um, I think philosophically too, there's a way to kind of think about this, which is like which community and which technology aligns with my kind of, um, you know, objectives or my, the, the framework with which I use to kind of view how the world should work. Um, I've always found Ethereum's kind of approach to building to be totally inspirational. I think Vitalik is like a huge, uh, a massive genius who just like, I'm, I'm definitely a Vitalik fanboy. Um, and I think he's highly considerate and he has some strong ideas, but also is realistic about the role of regulation and the role of government and the role of, you know, he's not just like, he's not like an insane person yelling that like Bitcoin is gold or something. So I think when it comes to thinking about creating decentralized technologies and caring about the end user and um, that Ethereum has like a huge leg up on any other kind of ecosystem out there. And, and I think at the end of the day, that kind of thing, which maybe boils down to like brand or something is superpower, like a superpower and, uh, and means that Ethereum will continue to grow and, um, develop and that more developers will care about it and build on it. And then that just snowballs into more attention and more kind of community, um, bigger, you know, at the end of the day, just a bigger, more sort of long-term technology. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like it's one of the more mature uh, uh, approaches to to building. Um, and I guess because it has such a big network of people who are dedicated to it, that that it it feels very sound. And and sometimes when you hear Vitalik talking, he literally has this very very long term view about what Ethereum will become. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think absolutely. maybe maybe uh, well, this kind of brings us to like a couple of questions around also again this idea of time and and how things have evolved. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, th this idea of of ownership and of assigning ownership to digital arts is always been problematic, and people have sort of said very loudly that the blockchain was the solution. 
but um, I'll post this in the show notes, but there's an article that that um, is on Rhizome where it sort of goes through the history of previous attempts to do something similar. And when you read the sort of examples that are in this article, the none of the previous attempts had anything ridiculous about them. I mean, people were collecting digital arts before um, before blockchains existed. Uh, and 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 it it seems like the only thing that it didn't have was mass adoption. Um, so today, what we're looking at is is essentially a system that, as we discussed earlier, is imperfect technically. It has flaws that it can be broken, and it requires this social consensus. So, um, you know, what what do you think uh, has made this particular, uh, uh, you know? way of owning a digital asset more powerful than any other solution before. Um, and, you know, I think we, we talked earlier a little bit about this idea that that ownership or provenance is, is could, could be a little tricky to sort of justify in an absolute way. Um, but yeah, I think you, you gave a little bit of the beginning of an answer earlier about the fact that the landscape that we're in now allows for more of exchanges and more of an easy way to prove through different sources that you are the owner, but but is there anything else that makes the sort of blockchain approach more powerful than than all the other attempts? I, I think it's a combination of like of technology and um, and then also just historical happenstance. Honestly, like right place, right time. So I mean, I think I, I I'm familiar with some of the um, kind of digital art ownership. Um, sort of historical precedents you're talking about. I definitely don't know about all of them, but I, I agree. None of them are ridiculous. And I think those people are way ahead of the curve and kind of knew what was coming in a way that most of us probably didn't. And I think like anything, you just, it's, it's not a matter of having the right product necessarily. I think you need the right product, but you also need just the right conditions, like historical conditions to kind of discover it and, and appreciate it and tout it and talk about it and get into it. And I think part of that is the, the kind of Ethereum blockchain. Like part of that is just Ethereum's mature enough at this point that this kind of thing was possible. And platforms like OpenSea had been building already for, you know, a year plus before the kind of big, big moment and paving the way. And then I think, you know, and then CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks and, and all these kind of precedents. And then, you know, technically speaking, you have these, yes, this way to kind of talk about ownership, discover ownership, sell and buy things, transfer in a way that is kind of cross-platform and decentral, decentralized. So yeah, I think part of it's technical. I mean, all those things are, you know, they're not just like confined to one little sort of, you know, corner of the internet. Um, they're theoretically spreadable across the entire internet and anyone can plug into it. So I think the fact that like, you know, this isn't just like a Fortnite skin that I bought that like now I can use on Fortnite, but like now I can actually go and sell those or I could make a business of making Fortnite skins and selling them to people and I can trade with others and all those kinds of functionality are super critical. Um, but then I think also just it's it's historical happenstance. It's like, how, how does anything kind of blow up and become a big thing? I mean, we had the pandemic, people were stuck at home. People were like, I think people at this historical moment are like really discovering how poisonous the ads model is and Facebook and YouTube and sort of searching for other ways to kind of connect online that maybe sort of have their center of gravity around different sort of points rather than, you know, these like platforms. They, 
now it's maybe more about like kind of these common interests that you share with these people that you, you own things with and that you talk about those things with, um, where you meet in different places like discord or Twitter, rather than kind of on Facebook or Instagram. I think there's just like a latent kind of energy or a desire to kind of, uh, yeah, to shake things up from like a purely social perspective that also powered a, a big chunk of that movement. Yeah. And then that's not even to mention the kind of like wage, uh, and income discrepancies that have kind of like launched into some of this, like gambling kind of, um, <laughs> uh, thing that people are doing, like the, the wall street bets kind of, um, stuff that we experience. I mean, uh, yeah, meme stocks. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of like quote unquote discovery that everything is kind of just a meme at the end of the day. I think all of that kind of con, you know, it's a big confluence of things that sort of produced this moment that was like explosive. Um, Hmm. and yeah, so it's a bit technology, a bit history, a bit kind of just cultural, like happenstance, but yeah. Um, because yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of these, these technologies could sort of like signify ownership, but like who would care about it? I don't know. I don't know anybody who would have cared that I owned this thing that some server somewhere says that I own it. <laughs> just, you know, you need the kind of social, uh, reality to be built up that, that, um, yeah, creates the kind of circumstances in which people are actually going to care or notice that you own the thing. Yeah. And, and it seems like in maybe the first two years felt very, um, uh, hype driven and very sort of crypto centric. And then in a sense, it seems like the crypto market entered into a bear phase, which we've been in for a few months. And in a sense, we've seen the NFT volume also uh, shrink quite a bit. But in the same time, what we are feeling um, is that the, the, this has led to an increase in, let's say, an appreciation of the technology, of the NFT technology, rather than the sort of speculative aspect of them, which, which also seems to lead to maybe people who are quite suspicious of it at first, like, let's say, institutions, uh, where they'd be cultural institutions, museums, galleries, et cetera, who would have said, no, but this is just ridiculous. It's going to pass now seem to be sort of entering into this more into this deeper belief that there's something there because the technology is interesting. Um, do you think that that's the case? Are we, is that something that we're just observing in our little bubble or, or would you say that that's something you're seeing from your perspective as well? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure I see the same thing. I, th I think I see maybe a larger percentage of the work that's going on is kind of legitimate, uh, you know, authentic kind of work. Maybe that's just because it isn't a great time to run a grift right now. So people are just kind of waiting. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure that there's actively more uh, good work happening, but maybe that just that there's actively less bad stuff happening. Just, you know people who had good intentions are just keeping plotting on. And then people who, who didn't are kind of waiting in the wings to strike again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when it comes to like institutions, I I'm not super plugged into this stuff, but from what I can tell, it seems like it's a mixed bag. I think I see a surprising number of institutions kind of getting, twisting themselves into a knot to kind of find ways to support work that I think is really questionable. Um, maybe I won't name names, but you know, <laughs> there's some really interesting art that I'm scare quoting 
that uh, I would never have thought that um, some major institutions would be kind of endorsing or supporting or promoting. But because the money's there, apparently, that maybe maybe it is art now. Um, and I'm told by friends who know better than me that maybe this is kind of a common thing to witness. Um, but then at the same time, yeah, institutions who maybe were hesitant because of the mania are, you know, finding ways to kind of enter into a more quiet and, um, you know, they're having a little bit less hesitance about entering into the market now that it's not as mania driven. So yeah. I think you kind of have both, at least as far as I can tell. Do you think that the term NFT will ever go away in terms of, cause it's such a, it's such a bad term for anybody to like non-fungible token. I mean, NFT in yeah. itself, there's nothing wrong with those three letters, but, but what they unpack as just feels so it relies on so much previous understanding of what a token is, what fungible means. Um, yeah. Is, is there, have you heard any sort of new monikers that are better or nothing yet? I think it, it might just be likely that it drops out that like, you don't have to say anything at all. You just talk about what it is like an art, mm. like the art or the yeah. like cards or whatever. I, I actually, I went to um, NFT NYC, which is a big conference. I didn't go to the conference cause I don't really care about that stuff. I just went to some of the parties, but like, I realized I spent like maybe three days there hanging out with NFT people. And I don't think I ever said the word NFT and I don't think I ever heard it. Cause like okay. we were just talking about this person or that person's work or this thing we saw or this game. Like, I don't know. We didn't need to specify that we were specifically talking about NFTs. I think we kind of all knew what we were talking about. And like, I don't know. Similarly, I hang out in discord a lot and like hang out with a lot of people who collect NFTs. And I don't know how often we really talk about NFTs per se. I think it's, just more about the collection experience or the specific thing that we saw over here or over there. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe the hope for not having to say NFT for the rest of our lives is like that people just kind of accept it, that it's a technology that allows you to own a digital thing. And then you just start talking about the digital things. You don't really have to say NFT anymore. Cause I also hate it. I don't want to say NFT anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of these like kind of half baked terms in the crypto space um yeah but like how often do you say http you know like right like true i don't know how often do you think about well, dot com or like you just kind of do it yeah know? yeah i don't know That's maybe true. it'll be like that yeah um and so in terms of the the future of 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 this adoption like right now it seems to me that there are the majority of the people who understand this and who use this technology are in the sort of let's call it the global west to use yeah. a politically charged term. Um, and then of course there are some people in, uh, you know, in, in South, uh, South America or in Africa who have found ways of using NFTs to raise their, uh, their income level. And, and we've heard a lot about play to earn in the Philippines and how people are making a living by, by being on Axie infinity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do you think that there's a lot more, uh, adoption that can happen like for example we live in a country here in belgium where where a lot of people have never even heard about it and still today and and who are or, or if they even have heard about it they don't really understand it like what do you see being the next step the next thing that will help um this technology sort of reach a larger audience i think like basically developing products that are quality enough to like stand alone as products without the kind of 
um, support system of being crypto. So like, I guess I'll expand on what I mean. So like over the past like year, you know, when this mania was happening, it was enough that it was an NFT to make people interested in it. Like, but NFTs aren't hard enough to make for that to make any sense. Like they're really easy. I mean, if you wouldn't want to make a basic NFT, it can take you like 10 minutes. So you, we live during this time when people were sort of fresh on this discovery of this new technology and were sort of hyped up just to be there. And they would, anything at all that was produced was interesting and, and worthy of, of review and discussion. I think like the real opportunity is like, well, what happens when we see like real games being built on the blockchain, like a game that you would actually want to play regardless of whether it was on the blockchain or not. I don't think we've seen anything like that. Maybe Axie Infinity um, and maybe some of these card games, but I don't really play those. Um, but we might see that soon. And like, what about products like collectible kind of product? Like what's, what's Pokemon like look like built on the blockchain, you know, where it didn't start as trading cards as a primitive, but it started as NFTs as a primitive. And then it built out from there and becomes the next Marvel um, or Pokemon. I think there's opportunities and there are teams exploring things like this. Um, we're trying to do something like this at Familiar. I won't say too much about that, but um, yeah, I think like building things that are standalone good things that don't um, rely on the kind of hype or interest of crypto alone will be, you know, will be the next thing. Like, and people will be drawn to those things on the strength of their, their qualities rather than the fact that they're leveraging this new and exciting technology. Um, because ultimately if you can't build something, that's just a better user experience and, you know, more interesting and more like leverage all those affordances we've talked about that make NFTs so interesting, then there's like, there's actually no point. Like if it's just not, if it's just not better then there's no point. So I think what it is that we need to see is just better, more and better stuff, more art, more games, more collectibles, more content and media, but just that sort of happened to start from like a crypto um, kind of as a primitive versus wherever else they may have started in the past. That makes sense. So maybe some of those are regional, you know, maybe some of those are like interesting in certain regions. Maybe there are, yeah, stuff like yeah. that. But ultimately, honestly, I think it's interesting that people say Web3 because like if all we're talking about is NFTs and tokens, then it's kind of hard to understand how like if web two is social media and web three is NFTs, there's like a big gap there, which is like, what do people do all day? So, I mean, like to me, when I think of web three, I think of like the next iteration of social experiences. Um, so I think there's opportunities to build basically everything, a suite of things that people do all day with like watching content or like, you know, hanging out online, like all those things are kind of reforming around new starting points or new centers of gravity. Um, and some of it feels familiar, like a jump back to kind of before. Some of it feels new. Um, so I think it's a big shakeup, like a big internet shakeup, basically. And people will sort of find different habits and different ways of interacting and being together, um, which isn't necessarily always obviously crypto, but that kind of, yeah, leverages all those cultural kind of shifts and then integrates crypto in interesting ways to come up with new platforms and ways of being online which those of us who are participating in it, I think that's kind of how we think about it. It's like, I don't really go on Instagram. I like go on discord and I don't talk about X, Y, and Z stuff. I talk about this other stuff and like, it's just kind of like reor reoriented the way I sort of behave online, I guess.
That makes sense. Sounds like a, a big topic, though. It's almost like reinventing, uh, as you said, social interactions or or, or using different codes, uh, different languages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it can't just be like, it can't just be new technology, which powers that it's, it has to be some latent kind of energy that shifts people in that direction, which I think, to be honest, we've been in that space for like five years or so. I mean, just like people getting sick with the kind of defaults that they have available to them, people being interested in different kinds of things, you know, than what you can do on Instagram, for example, like curating your sort of a composed view of your life on Instagram isn't so interesting to people anymore. Now it's about like anonymity and like mixing up my identity and appearing in like spaces that are in the shadows and like having different alts and like, I don't know, like stuff like that, where it's just like different cultural undercurrents, I think kind of create space to kind of, um, yeah, do something new and maybe use different technology to do it. All this is very vague. It needs to be worked out, but, <laughs> but yeah. It's definitely very inspiring. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of concludes all of my questions. I don't know if uh, Nicola or, or if you have anything or, or, or Jake, if you want to add anything that we didn't cover um, that people should understand about NFTs, but I think that was pretty comprehensive. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I hope I didn't, I, I tend to uh, have like a mix of um, sort of realism and optimism and uh, some people I talk to about NFTs find me like more depressive about them than they thought I would be or more kind of skeptical, I guess is the right word. And then others I talk to find me to be too optimistic about them and they're more skeptical. So anyway, I hope I struck a kind of good medium. I think there are reasons to be skeptical about many of the claims people make and there are reasons to be really excited and hopeful about being around and being in the space. And I think that's, that's kind of how I see the whole thing. So hopefully I communicated that. Yeah, and 100%. And I think that's why we're really happy to, to be talking to you because we feel the same way that there's really big promise and a lot of great stuff about this technology, but it also tends to get drowned in sort of miscomprehension and, and bad marketing and and people just uh, get excited for the wrong reasons when there's some really great stuff to get excited about. So um, yeah, thank you so much for expanding on all of that with us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been, it's been fun. <laughs>